the kill, and Warner wins the set. Fade away by Moores. In play with Craig Maddock, made possible by the exclusive support of Lake Area Technical College. It is you. Welcome to another edition of In Play. I'm Craig Maddock. He's traveled the world. He's run thousands and thousands of miles from running famous marathons in the Twin Cities, Chicago, Boston, and of course the Olympic Marathon in Sydney, Australia. He still has a South Dakota High School state track record. He has a Howard Wood Field Stadium record, and he has a Howard Wood Dakota Relays record, which still stands today. And after all of this, he is still a successful track coach at South Dakota State University. Our guest today is Huron native Rod DeHaven. Rod, welcome to In Play. Thank you, Craig, for having me on. You know, some people are just born to run. Sorry for the Springsteen uh, song reference there. But you started running at the age of 10. How did you get interested in running at such an early age? Uh, the Here in Public Schools had a uh, grade, school, grade school track program that occurred um, that spring. And I think grade five would have been my second year of doing that. And the apartment complex I lived in, there was a young man who was an eighth grader was going to run the Jackrabbit 15 and you know that sounded really cool to try and run that far mm-hmm. and uh did a few training runs I think I topped out at maybe four miles and um you know we went after it and uh you know got maybe 11 miles had to walk a bit ran a bit and all that kind of stuff and finally made it across in about oh probably two hours and 40 minutes or so so it took a long time but um and I was pretty sore and mother was pretty concerned about um <laughs> what that might be doing to my body. And in <laughs> retrospect, I don't advise 10 year olds running 50 mile road races, but uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I definitely hooked and, and definitely, you know, at that age, um, I was, you know, probably that was 1978. So I was definitely influenced by watching the 1976 Olympics in Montreal and specifically seeing the marathon on TV and, you know, probably even, you know, I think I was playing, of course, the McDonald's uh, game things where you try and get the, you know, the right thing for free fries or uh-huh. burgers or whatever <laughs> they were doing. So, uh-huh. um, you know, the influence of television and, um, you know, witnessing that Saturday afternoon marathon was, uh, you know, certainly had an impact on me. So during your middle school years, you were still dabbling with, with running long distance. Yeah, traditionally the Jackrabbit 15 was right after the high school track season, and mm-hmm. um, uh, traditionally would you know include a lot of high school kids um, that coming right off the state meet, and because of its uh, ability to draw some of the top road racers in the Midwest, I think um, a lot of high school kids were attracted to it, and so you know did the race. I think every year uh, up until my, my junior year of high school was last year, I did it as a high school student, and. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it got better. Um, a lot of times the last three miles were always a struggle, as you could see the Campanile in the distance. But, um, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah, the, I wasn't quite as sore as I was after that uh, first time back in uh, 77 or 78, whatever year I did it. Was cross-country in the fall and track in the spring, were those the only sports you were involved with in high school, or did you dabble in anything else? Uh, you know, I, I think I played basketball in the seventh grade and maybe didn't finish out the year. And then, of course, I was you know, one of those kids who, Still thought he could play, but certainly wasn't on a team and uh-huh. um, really couldn't play. You know, I think uh, my high school coaches probably could have schooled me pretty easily most of the time. 
especially if they're, you know, if, if we were going to wager any money, I'm sure they would up their game and it took me to the cleaners. So. <laughs> 1984, though, state track meet. You run the fastest time ever in the 1600 meters, just over four minutes and nine seconds. What was that day like? You know, you know, the one thing with that spring in particular was a, a kind of a long winter that delayed the start of the track season. Um, seemed like probably had the first three or four meets canceled and finally got some luck, um, you know, with a meet maybe in pier and then ran hard wood and ran fairly fast there. And then, um, you know, it was very windy on Friday. So maybe kept me from running significantly hard in the, in the, um, 32 open 3200 meter run and i think you know we won the four by eight um, which was a lot of fun mm -hmm. and um you know got a perfect day on saturday so just decided well you know let's go for it and um yeah i think roughly was out in 61 seconds and um just kind of held on after that and then once we got to lap to go uh maybe it was you know i needed another 61 to break 410 and that was a goal and uh got it done and uh, yeah that was uh I guess, you know, kind of a good way to cap off, uh, you know, high school career. It's been 38 years, Rod. Um, kids today, yeah. we all know they're bigger, they're better, they're stronger, they're faster. So why has your <laughs> record held out all these years? Well, it, you know, I, I think a lot of, you know, kids at that level, typically their teams expect a lot out of them. Um, and the way the schedule was configured at that time, it wasn't possible to maybe do as, do the 800 as well as the 3200 so didn't attempt it or you know it just didn't work out um and timing you know weather um you know maybe peaking at the right time um you know a lot lots of different factors uh, but probably the weather is maybe the biggest thing it just you know we just think of what happened in south dakota difficult to run super fast if you're battling a 15 to 20 mile an hour wind um as we've seen this month in this uh, state so when it came to college, uh, SDSU and Nebraska, I know, were amongst uh, the schools that you considered. Uh, were there a bunch more? Uh, there were others, um, but I didn't really seriously entertain them. Um, and the recruiting process was a lot different then. You know, your coaches would send you letters, and they were kind of relied on you sending a postcard back so they could hunt you down hmm. or via That's phone. Right. And, um, yeah, I just I hadn't really run that fast to elicit a lot of attention outside of uh, – the Northern Plains and uh, Jay Dirksen was the coach of Nebraska was aware of, of um, you know, the difficulties of running fast in South Dakota, being a South Dakota state coach for a long time. And, um, you know, I think uh, Indiana university had shown some interest because Steve Hydrank had been so successful for the Hoosiers uh, back in the early seventies and kind of what would have been a, a golden age of high school distance running in the early seventies with Heidenreich and Schemmel and uh, Jim Reinhart um, and then South Dakota state, of course. And they had, you know, established themselves as a pretty good program and ultimately kind of the team environment, culture, and uh, their overall goals of trying to win a national cross-country championship were very alluring. Uh, but the big thing was just, you know, how well the guys got along, and that was, you know, really the deciding factor. Um, not being a financial genius, I would have not paid anything to go to Nebraska but I didn't pay to go to school at FDSU. <laughs> you know, you still have a couple of records at Howard Wood Field. Uh, you have a Howard Wood Stadium college men's record, 1,500 meters, which he did in 1987, and uh, Howard Wood Dakota Relays record in the 5,000 meters, which he did a couple of years after you got the record in the 1,500 meters. Surprise, you still have those records when it comes to the college end of distance running with the 1,500 and the 5,000? 
Well, I think the one thing with the 1500, because there haven't been a lot of conference championships with the uh, NCC dissolving and um, the um, Northern Sun meets have been hosted there, but um, seems as though that meet doesn't maybe make a stop at Howard Ward like it used to. So that, that helps. Again, later in the season, chances of better weather, less wind, and athletes being maybe on top of their game have helped. And yeah, I think the 5K at Howard Wood, I had pretty good competition. I think actually that night it might have been snowing. <laughs> um, as you know, Howard Wood weather can go, but uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. yeah, my fitness level was pretty good, and I think uh, University of Nebraska had a couple of uh, young men in that 5K that uh, I think went on to be um, they weren't all Americans in the steeplechase at Division One level that year. I think within one or two years after that, they they did so. So it helped to be pushed that night, and um, you know, I, I did you know certainly enjoyed you know competing at Howard Wood. There's no doubt about that. When did you make that decision that you wanted to try to qualify for the Olympic trials? <laughs> um, well, when you're too dumb to quit, you know, well, you know, <laughs> shortly after college, then, you know, you get the question like, you know, constantly, especially if you're working part-time, full-time, whatever, and people know you run a lot. So are, are you in the Olympics? You're going to be in the Olympics. And, you know, and, you know, you know, that it's not typically a serious question, but, um, I think I had done a lot of things that were, you know, successful, but, you know, the big thing making the Olympic team was certainly the, you know, the gold star on the resume. And, uh, you know, timing again was uh, essential. You know, it may not have been the deepest time in U.S. history in terms of the marathon. Right. Um, you know, a hot day and, you know, I played it conservative enough to allow me to, you know, come through in the end. And, you know, that's a, it's a huge part of it. Unfortunately, um, the Olympic Games didn't go as well as the trials did, but um, you know, it's uh, you know, making that team is certainly something I'll uh, be very fond of. Nineteen eighty-eight, you qualify for the trials, fifteen hundred meters. What happened that year? Uh, you know, the Olympic trials were late July, and as a college student that went through, um, you know, I think I redshirted in the spring of eighty-eight, but still ran a number of races. It was just difficult for me to stay focused, and there weren't, you know, there weren't a ton of track races in the upper Midwest in the um, month of June or July, and had to rely on doing time trial trial solo. And uh, those that remember the summer of '88 also remember it was a scorcher in the prairie, and um, that didn't help with training either. I was somebody who insisted on trying Very to tough. keep working a job at the same time as training for the Olympic trials. Um, yeah, you know, led my heat for most of the race and then just got rolled by uh, seven or eight guys at the end who were very thankful that I took the heat out very hard and let them all advance the next <laughs> round. Well, you tried again in 92 and again in 96, but you didn't make the trials. But what, what kept you going to keep running during those years? Because you didn't have a coach. Um, you were You were self-coached this whole time, right? Right. Um, well, 96, I did run the Olympic trials. I think it was 10th and 10K. Uh, unfortunately, kind of developed an injury in the two months preceding that that trials um, related to running the Olympic trials marathon in '96, where I ended up dropping out. And um, you know, I, I think after '96, uh, you know, just figured out a, a way to train a little bit more efficiently, and had a good marathon in Chicago in uh, the fall of 1998, and uh, you know, was still making a little bit of money. You know, running maybe somewhere between twenty-five and thirty thousand a year, typically. <clears throat> and then, uh, you know, with that that run, I was able to run the World Championships in, in uh, 1999 in Seville, Spain. Finished 21st, and um, 
even though the time wasn't very good, um, you know, kind of felt like, okay, if you can be 21st in the world championships, you know, maybe there's a, you know, certainly enough of a carrot there to keep going at least for another year and get Mm -hmm. to an Olympic trial and see what happens. It seemed that 98 was maybe a turnaround for you because you, you did, you were the first American to finish and you did win some cash for that. Were you, were you training more or less in 98 when you compare it to what you were doing in 92 and in 96, trying to make the Olympic trials there? Well, I think in 96, I made some mistakes training wise and ended up, uh, you know, getting me hurt. I, I think, um, you know, I had taken a couple of weeks of absence from my work and really tried to jack up on miles and didn't really, um, maybe think it through clearly. I'd run a half marathon in San Diego and then piled in a huge mileage week right after that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, kind of, you know, set me back and ended up getting dinged up and set me back and then dropped out of the marathon trials. And then it, um, you know, bugged me a bit, um, you know, heading to the track trials as well. I was just, you know, I could tell that my body was not in the best of uh, condition and, um, it showed, you know, I could get through one round and make the final, but, um, uh, in the final, I really was a, a non-factor as they mm. like to say. So, well, well maybe <laughs> yeah, there, there does come a point where like I kind of had to either, um, uh, really, you know, up my game or, you know, probably, uh, pull it off to the, the sideline. And I used to joke that if you had three bad races in a row, it was time to retire. So, mm. well, May of 2000, it's uh, the Olympic trials in Pittsburgh hotter than, you know, what, uh, that day it was humid and runners all know that, you know, you, you don't like hot days uh, when it comes to running, but you won it and you qualified to be on the Olympic team and you won a bunch of money that day. Um, because you needed to place pretty high, if I remember, to qualify for the Olympic team. What was that day like running in the heat and knowing what you had to do to try to qualify for the Olympics? Um, it was uh, the, the tough part of it was that it was, uh, you know, heat that just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, it wasn't a particularly warm spring, and and as it turned out, it ended up being the hottest day of the entire uh, calendar year in Pittsburgh, where it was almost uh, 80 degrees, or it ended up being 88 degrees in race time. I think it was starting temp was maybe in the mid 60s and very humid, and um, ended up uh, you know being close to 70 plus degrees by the time we finished. And again, just kind of stupid humid. Um, so, and then given the other factor, I believe you know, the winner had to run under 214. And when the winner couldn't run under 214, that meant only the winner was going to go. And that's what you did. Uh, yeah, I didn't end up running that. So then instead of the normal three athletes, there was just one that was sent. So was- you won a bunch of money. I think it was like $75,000, which of course, a lot more than being that computer tech for that insurance company in Madison that you were working right. full time. What were you feeling at that time? You had made the Olympics, but you know what? You got rewarded for a great job that day. Yeah, I think the money was nice, but certainly the uh, making the Olympic team was, you know, the, the crowning achievement and, you know, the big thing. And then certainly a lot of people that um, knew I ran a lot didn't realize maybe the level that I was running at, you know, whether it be coworkers or people that lived in my neighborhood mm-hmm. um, back in Wisconsin. And, um, you know, again, it was, you know, something you dream about and you hope for and, you know, it worked out. Let's talk about uh, that flight from America going to Sydney, Australia to represent the U.S. in, in the marathon. What was that flight like? What were you thinking about? 
Um, yeah, we were, uh, as a marathon athlete, I was asked to go over, I think, you know, probably 20 plus days prior, um, because of the time change and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, they just wanted to shut down the processing center as well. Um, so I had a lot of hard training left once I got over there. And, um, so I was probably more concerned about how I was going to execute some of that in an area that, you know, was kind of foreign to me. And, uh, you know, I think the workouts went well. Um, the opening ceremonies was, a you know, tremendous, you know, just the, the awe of 120,000 people and, 200 plus countries and walking in with Tommy Lasorda, uh, all that was, uh, you know, a big deal. And, um, you know, I'm, uh, again, I'm just, you know, super fortunate to, uh, been able to experience that. About the day of uh, the marathon, uh, was it bad timing that, that, that there was an illness involved the day of, of the marathon? Yeah. You know, looking back, you know, certainly mistakes maybe in things that like where I ate, um, you know, still ate in the Olympic village, which was obviously they shut that down, you know, towards the end of the Olympic games. And I think a lot of food maybe wasn't as fresh as maybe what it would have been earlier. Mm. Um, you know, just rookie type mistakes that rookie Olympian mistakes that shouldn't have made and, um, should have used, you know, probably some of those funds that I won at the trials to, you know, think about private lodging, private food, all that kind of stuff. Mm. And, you know, you can't, you know, great experience being in the village and um can't go back and and change that and uh you know just the way it worked out afternoon races sometimes can be a little tricky uh, because you obviously would eat a little bit more normally marathon races day morning of you wouldn't eat very much so chances your stomach's going to be super irritated it'd be pretty low you still have the uniform uh that you wore that day yeah yeah still got uh, a lot of gear certainly the u.s uh doesn't uh doesn't short you on uh, things that uh, they provide for you. <laughs> Did you talk to any other coaches or athletes about your training prior to the Sydney Australia Olympics in 2000? Mm, not, not particularly. Um, you know, it was, it was a pattern that I followed prior to the Olympic trials and felt pretty confident that um, I would be in a good spot. Um, you know, and everything indicated that I was, you know, pretty fit. I'd done a half marathon tune-up uh, six weeks out, and it went very well. And <clears throat> really thought that I was capable of at least maybe a top 15 finish. I was, didn't really harbor um, crazy aspirations. I was going to be in the medal hunt, but knew what was realistic. And um, you know, still think that was probably likely. You know, seeing the the results of the race for a long time, Rod, you were running more than 100 miles a week. How did you handle the injuries when they came, and which which injury was the most nagging for you during this whole time? Um, you know, typical injury stuff would have been, you know, kind of uh, low back, uh, groin, glute type related stuff. So usually it was a combination of chiropractic and physical therapy that uh, was able to get me past that. But um, you know, sometimes it took longer than you know than I would have liked, and um, certainly those are the setbacks you deal with as an athlete. Were you a quick healer for the most part? Uh, as you get older, not so quick. So. <laughs> I hear you on that. I was a runner for about five years, late forties to uh, my early fifties. I ran five half marathons from 2007 to 2011. And in my training anyway, I had to have headphones and music on for my runs. When I didn't have music to get into the zone when running, I, I was awful. How about you, Rod? You know, during those miles and miles and miles of running by yourself, no earbuds to listen to music, 
what were you thinking about during those long runs throughout the career? Mm, well, there's always plenty of stuff to think about. It wasn't anything that is very distinctive that I remember. Um, you know, it was fortunate at times to have people to run with. So, you know, conversation, you know, was carried things along. And then some of the train venues in Wisconsin were um, scenic enough where you weren't, you know, looking off into a, a far abyss and thinking, okay, I've got a long way to go. <laughs> I was thinking that all the time. Oh, all those days you didn't want to run, did not want to run. But you know, I was one of those guys that used runner's world and used uh, their their training for a half marathon, um, you know, since, you know, I didn't know any better. Um, right. But uh, it was fun. It was, it was some of the best five years uh, I enjoyed when it, when it was running. I can't do it anymore. Uh, but but it's it, it it gets you, doesn't it? It it's it's hard to get out of that system. But you did it for so yeah, many years. Yeah, once you get um, into a groove and you get fit, it uh, you know it's a lifestyle that uh, is uh, you know certainly feels pretty good, and certainly the feeling of accomplishment is always a, a big part of it as well. If you were to do it all over again, would you train any different? Well, I think you know certainly things have evolved over the last twenty years, and. Um, you know, some equipment's evolved as well, which would help athletes, uh, you know, do better. And certainly you see that um, as it relates to times now that, uh, you know, a person has broken two hours for the marathon and um, that it is possible to make that happen. And um, yeah, there are definitely some changes in training, but, um, you know, I don't know that um, that would have been somebody that uh, would have uh, not tried to work a job at the same time as running. This is but, your seventeenth. You know, very few athletes obviously do that now. Right. It's, a lot of times, they're fully, you know, Olympic level athletes are usually very, very, you know, singly focused as it relates to that. Rob, this is your seventeenth year as director of track and field and cross country at South Dakota State. When did you get that itch to coach, or did you get persuaded to get into coaching? Yeah, I think it was a conversation with Paul Danger, who was a coach at the time at SDSU, um, on the eve of. Uh, what it would have been SDSU's last uh, Division Two national cross country meet, and I was basically just playing sixty four questions with him, and then he <laughs> said, "You sure ask a lot of questions. Do you ever want to coach?" And <laughs> hadn't really thought about it too seriously before then, but I had certainly time to contemplate it. I was trying to get ready for the two thousand four Olympic trials, which I still thought, you know, perhaps I'd have a a reasonable shot, and uh, was having some problems with my SI joint, and um, you know that clearly wasn't going to heal in time thought more and more about potentially collegiate coaching and um, Paul was pretty instrumental in continuing to feed that, um, that bug um, to me and uh, instrumental, instrumental in helping me uh, you know, ultimately, you know, get a, get the gig at SDSU. 17 years. You've been conference coach of the year, 13 times, a lot of success for Jackrabbit men and women, but what's been the biggest change that you've seen for you coaching over these past 17 years? Well, I think um, I don't have to be nearly as creative as I was when we didn't have a Sanford Jackrabbit Athletic Complex. Um, you know, when you know your train venue and that a winner might have been uh, the uh, balcony of Frost Arena um, compared to the uh, ultra modern, ultra large uh, Sanford Jackrabbit Athletic Complex. I think that's probably the biggest thing um, allowed us to kind of take some of the uh, what if factor out of things. You were running 100 miles a week. Uh, is, has that gone away uh, if you want to be in the marathon or whatever long-distance running you want to be? Is more miles better when it comes to training? 
Um, yeah, I think most world class, uh, you know, U.S. and world class athletes that are running for the, running the marathon are going to run somewhere between 110 and 140 miles a week very consistently. I don't think that's changed too much. Um, you know, a lot of them are going to go to you know higher altitudes to do that as well. And um, yeah, that's that's the standard formula, and you know that's why you see athletes flocking to Colorado and Flagstaff, Arizona, and you know other places of similar altitude. Rod, you're in the South Dakota Sports Hall of Fame. You're in the Jack Rabbit Sports Hall of Fame. What does that mean to you? Um, you know, it means I was very lucky to have an extended career that people noticed <laughs> for the most part. Uh-huh. And um, you know that uh, you know those are those are big honors, and um, you know, a lot of people helped me get to that point. And uh, again, I was you know super lucky and super fortunate to have opportunities. Um, and again, timing was a big part of that. Do you still run today? Uh, very irregularly. I'm, I'm struggling with some heel problems at the moment. Mm. Not, unfortunately, not plantar fasciitis. Uh, you know, perhaps maybe a degenerative heel pad. But um, trying to work through that, and hopefully be able to get back out there more consistently than what I have been over the last six months. Did you uh, have you ever uh, run with the family? Did you get uh, the wife and the three kids all out at one time and just go out for a ten mile run? you do that at all? <laughs> uh, no, no, not, not so much. Um, yeah, it, um, you know, when my, uh, two boys were running, I uh, really didn't get an opportunity to run that much with them. They, they like running with their friends a lot more than they like running with me. So, um, and that's, that's fine. I mean, that's part of the big part of running. If you can enjoy it, particularly at the high school and collegiate level, the, the social aspect of, you know, being able to go out and run with your friends is a pretty big one. And, and, uh, you know, don't fault them at all for, you know, doing that. There have been very few South Dakotans to run in the Olympics. Of course, Billy Mills won the 10,000 meters in Tokyo in 64. Have you ever met Billy Mills? Yeah, I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, Mr. Mills a couple of times. And obviously, he's a very iconic figure. And, um, yeah, it, uh, what he did was, you know, still one of the greatest sports, you know, moments. Um, in U.S. Olympic history, when you think about what he was ranked coming in and his ability to win that gold medal and the way he did it. What do you tell people today, no matter what their age is, uh, no matter what their experience is, what do you tell them about getting into running and the best way to go about it? Usually uh, preach to them patience and consistency. <laughs> that it, it, um, it will be difficult at first. It might even suck. Um, but if you can be consistent with it, um, it gets better and obviously more enjoyable at that point. When you're standing there watching your athletes uh, go through the motions at South Dakota State uh, in spring track, and maybe there's some memories that, that pop into your, your your brain of things that you did, is there one that always keeps coming back? Is it always the Olympic experience, or was there another race somewhere at another time that you think about, boy, I really was good that day. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there are there are a few races that obviously you know we're we're good and um, you know a lot of times those aren't races that I necessarily won, but um, there are a lot of races that you know do stick out in my mind. You know, running uh, you know three hundred and forty and the fifteen hundred at the Division Two National Meet back in eighty seven, and losing to two guys would be in the Olympics the following year for Kenya um, in Seoul, Korea. And one would go on and win the medal in that same, win the gold medal in that same event. Um, you know that uh, 
was a, a lot of fun. I you know, certainly wish the result might have flipped as I wasn't able to ever win a Division Two outdoor title. But um, um, yeah, it was uh, you know a very memorable race, and you know there are others like that. But um, you know, I, I try not to dwell too much on what I did. It's more of like you know if I made mistakes and emphasizing, okay, people uh-huh. make mistakes, and there's ways that you can potentially avoid making those same mistakes now. I did run the Mickelson Marathon when I uh, ran the Mickelson Half. Um, it was uh, the beauty of the landscape. I tried to take it in while I was was running. Which place um, had the beautiful landscape that you go, wow, this is great, while you were still competing while running anywhere in the world? <laughs> um, in an actual competition, I'm not not sure. I'm you know, fortunate to run you know plenty of races in Europe and. And obviously, a lot of stuff all, all throughout North America. Um, you know, I guess yeah, I never really paid too much attention to the landscape during a, a typical competition. Um, but yeah, very fortunate to get running was a great way to explore a lot of places. Um, you know, in this country and again throughout North America and Europe, just to be able to go out and about and uh, you know, just kind of chart my own path and um, see things that maybe. As a normal tourist, you wouldn't necessarily see. (laughs) I think that's the one thing that I've always been fond about running that um, gives you a great deal of freedom uh, to see things that, uh, again, they may not be able to see from a car or even on a bike. Last one for you, Rod. Uh, As a coach um, with the program at South Dakota State, now that they uh, have been Division I now for several years, um, what kind of an athlete uh, do you look for? What athlete uh, do you look for? And is it any different than when they were division two, uh, the kind of an athlete that, uh, can be a long distance runner? Well, I think just in general, not just distance runners, um, but all across the track team, I think, um, you know, the, the, you know, the types of kids that end up coming to issue haven't changed dramatically. Um, you look at our roster and then a lot of the same hometowns pop out as what would have popped out, you know, 30 years ago. Um, and the difference now, obviously, the facility helps a ton in terms of attracting maybe a little bit higher level of athlete. But, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of those same kids have the same demeanor that, um, you know, kids in the Division Two era had that, you know, maybe they, you know, felt as though they were uh, looked over a little bit by higher level programs and wanted an opportunity to compete uh, high level meets and uh, compete against high level competition and and um, that's what we hopefully are providing um, you know our our top end kids to be able to do that on a regular fairly regular basis and uh, um, you know we've been fortunate to have some all Americans both in cross country and track and uh, you know kind of hope to keep going and build on that and uh, you know win a few more Summit League titles, both in cross-country and and during track season as well. In Play with Craig Mavic, made possible by the exclusive support of Lake Area Technical College. It is you. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us gain new listeners. This has been In Play with me, Craig Mavic. This is a production of South Dakota Public Broadcasting.